I am ready when you are. Okay. Three, okay. Two, two, one. Welcome to this episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 FM LP, your local community radio station in Brattleboro. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and I have with me regular contributor and representative Emily Kornheiser, who represents Brattleboro. And we are the Montpelier Happy Hour, live, on the audio, on the internet. We are here. It's an so early many Friday places morning. now. Good morning, <laughs> Olga. Good morning. Good morning. And we should probably, because we I've noticed um, we've been getting some new viewers. You've been noticing we've been getting some new viewers. And for those who don't know, we talk about, our little tagline is, we talk about how things in Montpelier shake out for Wyndham County and basically kind of dig into things. How would you describe that, Emily? I would say that we like to talk about the story behind the policy. So what are the forces, what policy is being talked about right now, but then what are the sort of larger forces that are shaping that policy, whether that's history or national politics or culture or whatever it is, but really like dig into what are the frameworks that shape the conversations that we're having in Montpelier right now and how does, how does, Wyndham County shape that and how does that shape Wyndham County? Mm-hmm. Very so we like to give like we like to dig deep. Um, and so I've been feeling that um, you know in this particular time we're in, there's this urgent need to deliver information to mm-hmm. community members. And so we've been in our last few episodes really sort of going straight information. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, a lot of our bonus episodes, which I think that's good for the bonus episodes. Me too, but I'm looking forward to going back into the diving because there's a lot to be learned from this time as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, that is yeah. that's my hope. And uh, one thing I was hoping we would do with the happy hour, at least some of these longer ones. Mm-hmm. Poor Emily, I'm springing this on her without telling her. It's okay, um, my teabag just like fell on my face oh, on okay, live hey. TV, so <laughs> spring We're away. It. Yes. <laughs> live um, is. I really, I am so fascinated with how, as we've talked about, COVID is, is, as we say, highlighting the cracks in our systems. Mm -hmm. And I really want us as a community to recognize that Mm -hmm. and to say, okay, this is what I'm learning now. Mm -hmm. And if it was up to me, this is what I would do about that. This is how I would yes. change the system. This is how I would, this is the new policy I would implement, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because I felt in myself yesterday, and my poor editorial friends at the Commons, <laughs> first I went through anger and then I went through understanding. Um, and they got the anger part. You're getting the understanding. Um, Aww. <laughs> Perfect. Yay. Um, I shifted a little bit and I realized... Um, that I'd kind of just lost patience with the crisis mode. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that is, you know, the commons has gone through some financial ups and downs over the years. And what that has taught me about operating in crisis mode is that if you're not careful and if you're not um, being aware of how you're operating, you can just get into survival mode. And that is a place where there is no creativity Mm-hmm. It's it's just kind of fear based, 
survival based. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't want us as a community to stay in that place. I mean, and, mm-hmm. and I don't say that to take this, this crisis lightly. No, the fear is very real. The fear is real. Yeah. The fact that people are dying and more will probably die is extremely real. Um, at the same time, I want us to um, be able to make this something that benefits us in the long run. Mm-hmm. rather than just pulls us down into fear and keeps us there. Thank you. I have been thinking on that myself very much. Um, and I think a particularly apt example of it um, for me is two things. Um, the way our unemployment benefits are about to work is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And um, there's two aspects of, the, of it that I'm really struggling with. One is... Um, a lot of Vermonters, a lot of people are sort of really used to being like angry all the time about the federal government, right? Like very warranted, very mm-hmm. warranted anger all the time about the federal government. So I'm seeing people sharing these memes about like what Canada is doing versus the US in this time and like how all this money is going like to corporations instead of the people and all of these things. Um, but there's a lot of misinformation there because, in fact, our unemployment benefits are about to be an extraordinarily powerful social safety net that will be available for all workers, right? Yeah. Um, and for some people, even more than they were making when they were working. Mm-hmm. It's like it's really an extraordinary shift in what policy has been up until this point. And um, I was amazed at how quickly that policy went into place. Yes. And so that's very, very, very exciting. Um, and so we're so mad at, we're so used to being mad that things aren't working that we struggle to recognize when things are working and find sort of the hope in the darkness or the, you know, um, I don't want to quote Leonard Cohen or Rebecca Solnit too much in one day and the day is early. So I'm going to hold off on that. But um, <laughs> what, so there's that piece. And then there's the other piece of, you know, the Department of Labor is going from a teeny tiny operation with very few folks who were unemployed to having more claims in two weeks than they had all of last year. And so they're scaling up so fast and they're humans that are doing like the best they can. Um, but people need to be trained. New computer systems need to be built. There's only so fast that can go and still go well. And so I was trying to um, express this patience, um, this need for patience and a little bit of trust, which I know is hard (laughs) for me too, um, on a call yesterday with a bunch of economic development professionals. And Chris Campany from the Wyndham Regional Commission um, sort of did a side chat with me on a Zoom call and thanked me for the, you know, the patience and sent me this quote from Wendell Berry that I want to read. And thank you, Chris if you happen to be listening or watching through any of the various ways this is now being shared. Um, You can describe the predicament we're in as an emergency and your trial is to learn to be patient in an emergency. And I think that's a very interesting insight. Um, And that doesn't, being patient doesn't mean just sitting on your hands, right? And I think that's also like a very American capitalist dichotomy, right? being patient means sitting on your hands it means looking being using your discernment to find out what's available to you in that moment what is emerging what you can stimulate to emerge whatever it is um but it's really like sitting in your discernment and making decisions from there um rather than jumping forward to reaction 
And so I, that's something I'm really going to try to hold on to um, as we make policy decisions in the weeks and months to come and looking for allies and doing that because it's really hard to do that alone. So thank mm. you for thank you for being in that same place, Olga. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. And, and it's um, it's these little moments that I think makes the happy hour really special. Me too. That and when we share cocktail um, <laughs> recipes, which because we've been doing so many morning things we haven't been doing recently. No. <laughs> so many morning recordings. Um, I, I have a very nice um, mixture of coffee and sugar and half and half this morning. You know how some oh. mornings you just nail that right? Mm-hmm. Did that morning, right? I decided to do two tea bags instead of just one for oh. my English breakfast tea. That's, it sounds like you are gearing up for some serious committee meetings. I am. Yes. <laughs> so one thing I'm curious about, Emily, because this was big in Vermont before COVID-19 happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I am wondering what you at the legislative level are hearing about the digital divide. Because we have become so reliant now on the internet. And yet there were so many Vermonters who really had little to no access of the internet. Um, I can only imagine it's gotten worse. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's absolutely gotten worse. Um, one example that um, is so ridiculous and telling as to be funny <laughs> is that um, I've been in two different committee hearings, one um, just my committee ways and means and then one a joint hearing with education committee um, where the um, NEA, um, someone from the NEA is speaking about the digital divide and how it's impacting schools. And both times he has started to say this, his own internet (laughs) has gone um, so fuzzy that we have trouble hearing him and he has to turn off his video and then it becomes this whole thing. And it's like, and it's happened twice. Um, And Similarly, we had someone else who was testifying um, who um, she works with the Vermont Leagues of Cities and Towns, and she had been driving around looking for a good cell phone signal to call in and was sort of sitting in her car um, and clearly felt very frazzled because that is like not, you know, she's used to like wearing a suit and showing up in a committee room and like having a moment to gather herself and all those things. And she even said, like, I feel really scattered, so maybe you should just read the testimony that I submitted when I was feeling centered instead of having me talk right now. Um, And so those are like the slightest, most incredibly privileged examples of how we're seeing the digital divide right right now, right? Um, And what I think that I've heard people, um, what I've been focusing on and that I've been really hearing people focusing on is that there's sort of two different pieces to the digital divide, right? We still, because of the essential monopoly status of most of our providers, we have incredibly high costs Mm -hmm. to get good access, right? Um, And so there's the digital divide with people who can't afford to get on whatever internet is available to them. And then there's the digital divide with communities that um, are, were sort of left behind in this, often because it's sort of a collection of communities that are um, low enough income and rural enough that no one, no one bothered to go wire there, right? Because there's mm-hmm. no profit to be made. So that's still an economic divide in some ways, but it's a more of a whole community economic divide rather than an economic, economic divide within a community. 
Right. And so what I've seen in this time is there's a willingness for the first time, um, a widespread willingness, I'll say, I can't imagine, you know, I don't want to say it's like it's the first time anyone's been willing, but a widespread willingness for the first time for us to resource the economic side of that digital divide. Um, and so historically, we had this like lifeline program for telephones, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's been I have no idea how long that program's been going, but decades and decades and decades. And it was an acknowledgement that everyone needs a phone in their house. And that is something that some people can pay for and some people can't pay for. And so there's a system for people to have an essentially free telephone in their house, right? Um, and that's been in legislation forever. And so it seems that schools especially are coming around to the idea that all children need internet in their home in order to get a good education. And so schools are stepping up to be willing to pay for that internet access at someone's house if they're not able to do that, as well as the hardware to do that. Um, and so that feels like a huge step mm -hmm. um, is supplementing that side. And it's difficult because of federal constraints, we can't legislate that those providers have to provide it. And so oh, we see some providers because, um, copper sort of landlines are um, regulated very differently than internet stuff. And we're like federally preempted from doing almost everything with cell phones and internet access, mm -hmm. um, which is sort of a reason for why the 5G debate is more complicated than um, we're always able to see. But that is a side note. Um, so because we're federally preempted from regulating much of that, our only option is to sort of pour resources into it rather than to try to um, require corporations to do something specific. Mm -hmm. And so we, right now we see some corporations stepping up into sort of the um, good neighbor role, right? And so we've seen Comcast offer to double the speed for kids. Um, if new people sign up, we've seen something similar for some other corporations. And generally, you know, as someone who used to work in public private partnerships, corporate social responsibility, you don't do that because you're like a good person, a good citizen. It's not like whatever that Google, what was Google's slogan before? Um, don't be a jerk or it was like their corporate slogan for a while. Oh, I don't know. I don't remember. Oh, it's like they just got rid of it recently. It wasn't don't be a jerk, but it was something like equivalent to that. Which is a good slogan. It's a good corporate slogan. Yeah, they actually don't have it anymore. They got rid of it. But um, hmm. <laughs> it's because people see a long term market interest right, mm -hmm. in the corporate social responsibility. And so if they're bringing on all of these new low-income customers right now who didn't sign up before, those people are going to be locked into those contracts, essentially. It's very, you know, or people just tend to not step, remember to step out of their contracts when the financial incentive is gone. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're seeing that, but there's no, um, we have no ability on the state level to sort of or very limited ability on the state level to require the kinds of um, regulation that we would need to sort of maintain that piece of the pie mm -hmm. for low-income folks. Interesting. So the second part is like all of those communities that just don't have any internet at all, like Reedsboro or um, like half the Northeast Kingdom or <laughs> yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then we really need to look to the community-based solutions that we were working on really, really, really well, like before this all started, right? Yeah, at town meeting, um, four towns agreed to join into one of those community, I'm forgetting, community utility districts. Yes, a CUD, Communications Union Communi District. There we go. Thank you. Yeah. Now, I want to ask you about those because I think those are very fascinating. 
they were put they grew out of legislation that was passed last session Mm -hmm. um and they basically allow what they sound like they allow Mm -hmm. they allow a lot of communities to get together and basically create a utility Mm -hmm. and an internet utility but i wonder what you just said about um federal preemption do these Mm -hmm. um cuds it's a horrible it's horrible but it's people just say cud generally there you go sorry um I don't know. I thought of cows. Cut it. Um, no, cut is fun. <laughs> do they have other f- uh, regulatory flexibility that maybe the state doesn't have? Because well, if, yeah. I mean, in some ways. So if it's um, the when towns get together to form a communications union district, um, and we should have someone like we should do a whole mm-hmm. episode about this at some point and bring people on to interview about it because there's some great folks at the public service department to talk about this and representative Sibelia was one of the leaders on this legislation and um anyway a lot more to say but when the communications unit district is formed they then have a lot of different options for what to do next so they could do a publicly owned utility um that's sort of the same way um a fire district Mm -hmm. um and it's modeled after sort of the fire district or the school district model um or they can come together and basically um, be collaborating to create a market opportunity for a nonprofit utility, which is separate, um, which is what, um, oh, it just fell out of my head. Um, there's a organization in the Woodstock area that does, that's oh, been doing um, um, sort of nonprofit. I don't know why the word is gone. Sorry. Is that uh, Eve? Yes, EC Fiber. EC yes. Fiber. Thank you, EC Fiber. Um, and so that's a nonprofit um, corporation that sort of agrees to serve certain districts. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that case, you're really just sort of guaranteeing an organized available market to an organization. Um, and then there's also ways that a communication union district, district could come together um, raise funds to basically just lure a regular private provider in. And so in all of those instances, there's different regulatory things available to that communications union district. Obviously with a publicly owned utility, they would have a lot of, they would, the communities would own it. And so they would serve on the board of directors and they would have a lot of power over that, over that utility. Mm -hmm. Um, And sort of, as you go down from, as you go across the spectrum from publicly owned to privately owned with the not-for-profit in the middle, there's less and less control there. Mm. Yes. Um, Wilmington and um, let's see, Wilmington, Halifax, Whitingham, and I'm forgetting somebody joined the, joined a CUD and they were just starting to hold their first meetings when some of the, the, for lack of a better term, lockdowns started mm-hmm. to go into place. So I'm not quite sure where they are at. There are some local groups in Brattleboro that are also trying to kind of infill that mm-hmm. that first situation you talked about where Brattleboro as a community mm-hmm. has pretty decent coverage. Mm-hmm. I know it's not every single place, um, uh, you know, right up to the borders, but it's got pretty decent coverage. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of people within Brattleboro mm-hmm. who don't have adequate internet and there's some so there's some local organizations trying to to work with people who need internet Mm -hmm, absolutely um 
And I get all of the meeting announcements and meeting minutes from the Deerfield Valley Communications Union District. Oh, good. Okay. Um, and so I've been following that and they're continuing to meet virtually now. Good. Um, which is great. I have so, on that list. Yes, indeed. Guys, <laughs> you're not on it. I am um, too. And, yeah. and I should be on it. Um, so that... So yeah, those are the options. What's interesting in the money that's coming um, from the feds and the, you know, through the CARES Act is that there is, um, the states are not really given very much money for this kind of work, um, mm -hmm. even though we've sort of created a mechanism to disperse those funds. The schools are receiving a decent amount of money that they could use towards connectivity for their children um, but that's sort of a roundabout way of getting there. Mm -hmm. um, and so where there is money um, in the CARES Act that could go to this is there's a significant chunk of money that's going to um, the EDA. Hmm. And they have historically put a lot of money into sort of the kinds of economic, into economic development infrastructure, um, sort of, you know, roads, sewer systems, the kinds of um, infrastructure that you need to sort of build industrial parks and have that kind of development. Um, or, you know, even in our rural downtowns, often they need that kind of physical infrastructure in order to even like add a second general store or an ice cream shop or a microbrewery or whatever. Right. Um, and so the EDA funds, it would be a really small leap for them to go from um, what someone actually recently phrase to me as roads and commodes um, <laughs> to internet access, which um, in that same conversation I referred to as, um, oh, it was very funny and now, oh, the sewer system of the sky. Oh. I know, so cute, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> Given the people who are, who are like hacking Zoom, yeah, and, and putting pornography into the middle of meetings, I think mm -hmm. uh, you, that's an apt description, right? So, <laughs> um, so that's a real option. Those EDA funds and maybe some of the community development block grant funds, but the EDA funds seem like the most likely place that we could really do some serious rural connectivity work. Um, but again, don't want to stress. I don't think we can stress enough that just wiring to people's homes or like wirelessly-ing to whatever mechanism gets to people's homes, there's still a significant digital divide on the cost of access. Right. And we need to solve that if we're going to get everyone online, mm -hmm. um, which is in this time clearly necessary. And one of those sort of cracks that makes us see that like, you know, this is something that we all need always. Um, mm -hmm. People really don't just use the internet for porn, even if it seems like that sometimes. <laughs> And uh, thank you, Emily. Mm -hmm. This reminds me, talking about cost, mm. um, some, some conversations have risen to the surface about, quote unquote, hazard pay. Mm -hmm. Can you go into that? What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, so I think it's actually an interesting connection to the digital divide, because what we see right now is folks are economically in th one of three positions. Um, and... I know that I'm never supposed to start any sentence or paragraph with a number because I always wind up with a different amount of ideas by the time <laughs> I'm done talking. But um, we won't hold you to it. <laughs> please don't. <laughs> Terrible habit. Um, 
so we have folks who have the economic privilege to be able to work from home, right? And those are folks who have a decent amount of internet connectivity at their houses and have the kinds of professional jobs that exist mostly inside of a computer. Um, and that is sort of writing and talking and managing and supervising and all of those things, right? Mm -hmm. That don't require direct contact with humans. Um, and we've seen some people who have jobs that have sort of previously um, been direct contact with humans, been able to pivot to the virtual world. So the team that I supervise at Youth Services generally spends like 30 minutes a day tops on a computer and now are able to do most of their work with youth mm -hmm. on a computer. But still, like people who have the economic privilege um, and the geographic privilege to work from home, we have people who are in jobs that did not have the economic privilege to work from home and have now been laid off. And then we have a third category of folks who are considered essential workers, who are still out in the world amidst the contagion, caring for people. Mm -hmm. And the caring for people takes a few forms, right? So there's the traditional caring professions of nursing and doctoring and all the medical things. Um, but that's even, it's the frontline workers. We've seen a lot of doctors move towards um, telemedicine, right? Mm -hmm. And so the frontline medical workers are the ones who are um, out in the world right now. Frontline social workers, folks who really like, you know, are working in residential facilities um, and folks who are living in residential facilities, mm -hmm. those folks. Um, and then people who make sure that we eat or um, are safe, mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, people who work in grocery stores, people who produce food, farmers, um, food manufacturers, etc. Yep. I would also add people who uh, transport everything that mm -hmm. we need right now to eat. Yes. Or... Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And so, in a few of those professions, um, healthcare, social work, etc., we tend to have um, they tend to be unionized professions, and they tend to already be in conversations with management about working conditions. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, a lot of those folks have already signed up for slightly dangerous working conditions, right? Um, so if you're working in a residential facility, um, you've often sort of already agreed that there might sometimes be violence in your workplace and that there are mechanisms in place for you to be safe in that circumstance. Mm -hmm. Or um, in sort of direct healthcare, that there will be sick people and there are mechanisms in place to sanitize, right? Um, and unions have sort of a long history of being in that conversation with management around safe working conditions is something that VSEA is always talking about, um, mm -hmm. especially. And then you, um, we have all the folks who are working sort of in grocery stores or trucking or food manufacturing who in Vermont, um, at least, and I think nationally for the most part are not unionized professions mm. um, and are not necessarily are often low-wage jobs and are folks who did not ever agree to be doing something that has much risk in it other than risk of not being able to pay your bills because you're not making very much money which is a substantial risk right. and so those folks um, are still working because they need to pay their bills mm -hmm. um, but did not necessarily sign up for the level of intensity that they're facing right now in their jobs and so there are some rude shoppers out there right now <laughs> i know i know 
I went to the, I went to the grocery store for the first time in a couple weeks mm-hmm. yesterday. Um, it was a really, it was a really interesting, it was really sad. It was, I, I have a friend who works at a local grocery store and, and I went to her checkout specifically because I mm-hmm. wanted to say hi and see how she was doing. And I have never seen her look so tired. Just yeah. like that bone drained. She could curl up <clears throat> in bed and probably sleep for like a month. That yeah. kind of like just weary tired. And she's like, I just, she's like, personalities are losing it these days. And she says, and I'm getting it all. Yeah, it was really, I know. It's really like, yeah. And that's just the emotional labor of working in a grocery store, which is there like in the best of times too. Like people are, people are jerks, yeah. clerks, right. And to wait staff and like food service. Um, yeah. When I was shopping yesterday and I will um, admit, I'm one of those people who really enjoys the social interaction of the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Um, like the chatting with people in the aisles about the jam and like, I, I love it. I love going grocery shopping. I love talking to people at the grocery store. Um, I love the fact that like, you know, even every single person I have to like stop and talk politics with in addition to the jam, um, just like one of my favorite things to do. And I know that that's not entirely normal and that's okay. Um, And so being at the grocery store yesterday, it was, you know, pleasantly, um, sparsely, populated which is great because we could do our social distancing Mm -hmm. but people weren't making eye contact um or smiling or saying yeah it was really it was and maybe it was like the particular time of day I went um but people seemed just so scared Mm. yeah there was one woman and and I don't know why she was feeling this way she could be immunocompromised she could just be scared but there was one person who um as they were going through the aisle, every time someone got within like five feet, five inches from her, she's like, you need to back up. You need to back up, back up. You need to be further away. And she was like telling everyone that as she was moving through the store. Um, And you could just kind of feel everyone's tension level, just ratchet Mm -hmm. up. Um, And I I don't want to say she was wrong for that because I don't know why she was saying it. Yeah, But it was that kind of, I think she symbolized mm-hmm. the tension that everyone was feeling Yeah, as they were trying to do something quote unquote normal, like get groceries. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, um, it felt like it was really like there was an intentional need to break the fourth wall. Um, and so I was trying to open the plastic bag to put my produce in. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I was doing it, there was another woman like, you know, a healthy six feet over also doing the exact same thing. And I realized, and like neither of us could open the plastic bag. And I said, (laughs) I never realized until this moment that I always lick my finger to open the plastic bag at the grocery store, which is gross, like totally gross. Like I should not be doing that under normal circumstances and never realized that I did it. But in fact, I have no idea how to open the plastic bag without it. And so we were like both, we, it was just, and so that was like, it was incredible to like, oh, look, we still have shared humanity six feet away from each other as strangers. Um, but it's a, like, it's a lot of privilege that I'm showing up without all of that fear into the grocery store. Mm-hmm. So anyway, these are people going back to hazard pay and away from my bad produce bag habits. 
Yeah, we'll talk about tips and tricks about how to open produce bags. I, I did figure something out, actually, which is I'll tell you in a minute Okay. Uh, to wrap up this conversation. So um, <laughs> hazard pay is basically an acknowledgement that these people who did not necessarily agree to this are putting their lives on the line um, to sell groceries or truck or whatever and acknowledging that with an increase in pay. Mm -hmm. um, and some people are calling it like gratitude pay and all of these like very fluffy, lovely things, which I suppose is a nice reframing. But in fact, we have like a long history in this country of paying increased pay called hazard pay. Um, and so I like to just sort of stick with that because that's already a mechanism that's in collective bargaining agreements and seems like much more apt to me, given the situation at hand. Um, and so a few collective bargaining units have been able to win that. Um, that happened, city market agreed, and they're not calling it hazard pay, they're calling it something lovely and fluffy. Um, so that's the co-op in Burlington. Right, um, right. And so they're paying, I think an extra $3 an hour for folks who are working right now. Um, and there are other unions who are having that conversation as we speak. Um, mm. But for folks who are not unionized, um, which is the majority of workers in Vermont, it's really hard to be in the power position to do that. And so nationally, we're seeing these really like spontaneous collective strikes. Um, Amazon workers who are not getting right. hazard pay. Um, what's, what's that grocery? Insta Instacart? That's mm -hmm. what it's called. That's one of those places where the future is not in Vermont. And I don't know the words for it. Nope. Um, so, Insta which actually there is Instacart in Vermont, but like all these people who have very few labor rights because they're considered independent contractors or because they're working for an enormous corporation like Amazon um, are doing these really amazing spontaneous strikes um, to ask for hazard pay in those jobs too. So they're, they're kind of utilizing some of the union tools, even if they are not unionized. Yes. Yes. Which is really, it's really exciting. Now, um, some of the stimulus that's coming from the federal government, can Vermont take any of that and put it towards uh, something like hazard pay? Or is that really um, the responsibility of the employer? So there are different mechanisms. Um, so it's the responsibility of the employer to pay someone. Mm -hmm. um, but there are different ways we could do it. So for, um, say, designated agencies or a Medicaid um a Medicaid billing or a anyone who's in state contract with the state of anyone who's in a contract with the state of Vermont um, could hypothetically negotiate with the agency of human services or whomever else to say, we need to pay more in this time. Mm. Can our contract be increased to cover hazard pay? Okay. Um, that's sort of an available conversation. I, you know, where that conversation would go. We were planning to talk about the budget for a few minutes as mm -hmm. we wrap up. Um, and then for private companies who are paying hazard pay, there are sort of, you know, a lot of mechanisms available for loans, um, to cover increased costs during this time or decreased revenue. So that would be a place, um, where someone might access additional funding to pay hazard pay. Um, and there's a lot of flexibility around healthcare, um, and healthcare costs right now in the CARES Act and then in the legislation that the state of Vermont passed. Um, okay. So those are some things. The other thing I really want to name here um, that has not been as present in the conversation as I would like it to be is VOSHA, which is the Vermont Office, the Vermont Occupational Safety and 
hazard hazard what's the a agency it's not an agency yes. anyway whatever the a stands for um it's vermont's osha yeah so it's called vosha um and those are the folks who are supposed to you know pursue guarantee protect safe working conditions for workers and so as I've been hearing from folks who are like, my son's working somewhere that he's too close to people and what's the deal And like these, you know, like we have a mechanism in state government to enforce safe working conditions, not to enforce increased pay right now. And that might be on the table, um, but to, you know, enforce safe working conditions and to compensate people if they are injured or made sick at work, right? And so we could add a presumption of COVID um, to workers comp. That's an available policy option. Um, and so that means that if someone gets sick during this time and they're working, there would be a presumption that it was COVID and that they would be sort of um, benefited. So there's mm -hmm. like a presumption around um, PTSD for certain people in really traumatic work, working conditions. Mm -hmm. um, and so this would be sort of similar to that. And then make sure that VOSHA is really being very, very careful to enforce and protect safe working conditions around this pandemic. And so those are two other sort of available mechanisms in state government for making sure that our frontline workers are um, being protected and compensated for the hazardous conditions that they're in. Can I say one more thing? I feel like I've been talking for a while. It's okay, go ahead. The cracks that we're seeing mm -hmm. um, and the opportunities in those cracks is like, we are naming like who's essential in our economy. Yes. We're like saying it out loud and we're all like celebrating it and thanking them <laughs> and like making posters on street corners and like they're like named in like, you know, the governor's addresses, like who these people are that are essential to our economy. Like if that was not an argument for increasing wages, I do not. And healthcare and like all the benefits, like what else is like? Mm -hmm. it's an amazing thing that's happening where you're saying like you people who work on the front lines are essential to our economy not the like ceos right right yeah it is it's pretty cool when i saw the um the governor release his list of essential workers um i i looked at that and i said this is a game changer right this as is long as we don't let it go game changer yeah so we, we have to keep talking about about frontline workers because we want to make sure when everything goes back to, you know, the new normal mm -hmm. that this these lessons aren't forgotten. Mm -hmm. So, yes, let's keep naming naming things as often as we can. Yeah. Quickly. So, um, yeah. Oh, sorry. You. Please. Oh, me. Oh, me. Um, oh, yeah. I know you have to leave in a couple minutes to be on another meeting, but I mm -hmm. want to touch base because I don't want us to forget this. You know, one of the main things the legislature has to do every year is pass the state budget. So mm -hmm. in this case, we're talking fiscal year 21, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, Always confusing. In all the shuffling around and the changes and the needing to respond to COVID-19, where are we with that budget? And given that our revenue structure has completely changed, at least for these few months, mm. what does that mean for fiscal year 21? So the meeting that I am leaving you to go attend is a joint hearing between House Ways and Means and House Appropriations to talk about what's going to happen <laughs> in fiscal year 21. And so um, 
the opportunities that are available there and the scarcity that is real um, are, it's an interesting counterbalance. So um, when we talk about sort of, you know, the cracks in the system and the opportunities there, um, what we're carrying forward is some real opportunities for creativity with this flood of federal funding, right? Um, but that federal funding is structured in such a way that can only be used for new, non-previously um, legislated activities, mm. right? Um, that's how it, the language is. So it can't be previously obligated funds. So we are not allowed to use the federal funding to make up for any revenue shortfalls. And we were already at a bit of a revenue shortfall before all of this happened. Right. So we, as we've talked about fairly endlessly here on the Montpelier Happy Hour, the reason I wanted to be on Ways and Means is that um, Vermont does not ever even discuss what a full needs budget is. Right. Right. But what we do instead is say, this is how much money we have. What little scraps of things can we do in that little box, that like box that we have put ourselves into as a community? And we, what we know is that given the shortfalls that individuals and businesses are experiencing, our tax revenue is going to be significantly lower. And that's going to be into a few years. So when, if people's incomes are going down at this time, that means that the homestead taxes, right? People's reductions mm -hmm. in their property taxes from homestead declarations, that's going to be like a whole year out from now. So we're going to make serious... And then there's um, meals and rooms taxes going down, some sales taxes going down, right? As, as well as income taxes going down. And so as we experience this revenue shortfall, it's not just a temporary revenue shortfall, even though people might be experiencing a shorter income shortfall, mm -hmm. the individual household might be experiencing a shorter period of um, scarcity than the tax base will. So that's mm -hmm. good. We have a long time that we're going to experience a revenue shortfall if we keep our tax structure exactly the same as it is. And so the box is smaller, but then there's all this stuff that's going to happen outside of the box because of the federal funding being for non-obligated expenses, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's going to be a really interesting thing to balance. So we're going to need, if we don't do something about the particular way that revenues flow in, um, to compensate for the ways that certain of our streams are going down. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to really shrink the box for what state services are. Hmm. But we have this opportunity to add on all these new things. And so it could be a time of really intense creative energy mm -hmm. and really rethinking how our communities function, how our state functions, what we prioritize, and or... Um, a time of like real deep scarcity and tightening that we've, we're like, we've been sort of, you know, heading towards for a very long time. So that would not be a change. That would not be an interruption. It would not be a disruption. It would just be more of the same sort of descent into scarcity, 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 scarcity. And I don't think many of us and many of our institutions have much more to cut at this point. No, no, we've, we've kind of, a lot of us have cut as far as we can cut. It's, yes. it's no longer one of those, oh, just don't buy that latte once a week. We've, we've passed no. that. No. Yeah. So 
I'm really hoping that we choose creativity in this time. And I am committed to choosing creativity in this time. And I hope that folks can join me in that because um, I can't do it alone. And I think it's a really important thing. Before we wrap, I want to share my produce tip for opening okay. the bag without licking my finger. Okay. I touched the produce that I wanted to put in the bag, which in this case, just to really like continue to reinforce the terrible stereotypes of this situation I've walked myself into was a bunch of kale. <laughs> and so <laughs> because kale lasts a very long time in your refrigerator, it's not like lettuce, like it does not wilt. It never wilts. Like I can have a bunch of kale in my fridge for like four weeks and it'll still be mostly good. So Anyway, I touched a bunch of kale. The bunch of kale was wet, which under normal circumstances is incredibly annoying. Cause like if I'm paying by weight and paying for the water, also my hands all wet, annoying, but now my fingers are wet. So I could open my bag. Very so good. Anyway, thank you, Olga. Thank you, Emily. <laughs> Have a great meeting and we will talk next week. You can find us at the Vermontitude Facebook page, page the Vermontitude SoundCloud page, WVEW and on Emily's YouTube page. Have a great day. Emilycornheiser.org, ecornheiser at ledge.state.bt.us, ecornheiser at gmail, or all the social medias. And Olga, thank you for being an essential worker who is out there on the front lines covering all of these cracks, all of these opportunities on behalf of all of us. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. I appreciate that. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye. Bye.